So this morning we look to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and we'll be specifically uh, looking at verses 6 uh, to 13, 6 to 13 as we close out the chapter. I would like to read uh, those verses for us just to give us a context uh, for verses uh, 6 to 13, and then we will look at what it means. Uh, your boasting is not good. Do you... Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside God judges? Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. As we look at our passage this morning, uh, Paul is certainly interested in the holiness and purity of the Lord's church. And so we've entitled this sermon, Cleansing the Lord's Church, Cleansing the Lord's Church. And as we discussed last time, Uh, We were looking at this context in Corinth. Uh, The Lord's church is directly at this phase of the letter under direct assault from the arrogant. And what Paul defines as arrogant is uh, or uh, it's those who are allowed to sin in such a way uh, so as to uh, cause that sin to flourish unrestrained in the church. And the sin to which Paul is referring is the sin of sexual immorality. And so not only were they accomplices to this, but they were boasting it. And so that's the arrogance. If you see it, there it is. That's the reason that Paul says you are arrogant. And it's the reason he brings up arrogance throughout this portion of the letter, because they were not humble in their uh, thoughts toward God. They were not humble in their thoughts toward one another to be sinning in this way. Uh, They were not humble in their thoughts toward what Christ had accomplished in the fullness of of his fulfilling the Passover. And Paul will get to that because I believe that their immorality and disregard for Christ and his sacrifice also leads later in chapter 11 for them to desecrate the Lord's Supper and the table there. And so uh, Paul is dealing with them and their need to be humble. So they displayed their arrogance and Paul had committed with humility in Christ. He committed these things to judgment against them. So we remember that Paul being absent from them, although they trivialized his absence and they mocked him for his absence, he actually renders judgment against them. And we see that in verse five of this same chapter. I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So he wanted alienation for the purpose of reconciliation. He wanted judgment for the purpose of this man's sanctification. And so that was the issue. So here you have the desecration of the family, the desecration of uh, 
what God had designed in the context of marriage as a display of his union and his fidelity and faithfulness to one another. And so Paul deals with that. But they are arrogant. And so Paul wants to teach them humility. First, he warned them that sin itself is not a static thing. By that, I mean it festers if left unchecked. So sin grows if it's left unchecked and then it consumes. And so Paul is telling them that their sins are going to consume them and that their sins, in fact, already has caused devastation. But what sin does is it devastates anything and all things in its path. And he'll give the analogy of the leavening process by which you add yeast to the dough and that which you're making grows and grows. That dough grows and grows and grows. Well, he provides that same analogy to sin. That like yeast added to dough, sin grows and it grows and it grows, especially if left unchecked. And so Paul wanted them to root out this sin, and not only the sin, but the sinner who was unrepentant. So he wanted them to root out the sin and the sinner. So Paul's solution, as I mentioned, he offers one. It's listed in the verses before the one that we're looking at this morning, where he committed the adulterer to Satan directly for the destruction of the flesh. And so now he says, I've dealt with this because you won't deal with it. So now I want you to also deal with it. And he'll call them to do so as we get closer to the end of this particular chapter. That he has already rendered judgment against them, but he also wants them to do something. And so he calls on them to do that. Now, essentially what he's calling the Corinthians to is what they haven't demonstrated from the very start of this letter. Uh, He's calling them to full agreement with God. He wants them to agree with God. And he wants them to agree with the direct interests of his church. So the Corinthians were not interested in that to this point. Remember, they raised up factions. Uh, They had demonstrated uh, a certain arrogance toward one another and arrogance toward Paul, therefore an arrogance toward Christ. They had already begun to question God sending Paul to them. They had already became arrogant and not mourned in the presence of sin and in the presence of a sinner and also provided cover Uh, For him and became therefore accomplices. So what Paul is saying is he wants them to come to agreement with God because that is the only means through which they are going to bear evidence that they are a church, a true church. But first, they had to stop being arrogant. They had to stop being arrogant. He says in verse six, your boasting is not good. Your boasting is not good. They had to stop boasting in their sins. So then Paul is direct. He wants them to stop boasting. It's not good for them. It's not good for the church. It's not good in the the context of the full fellowship. He says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? And I would argue that in that leavening process of sin growing and remaining unchecked and multiplying in its destructiveness, what they contribute in the leaven sense is their arrogance. They're boasting in it. Their ability to not repent in the face of it, therefore cut it off and cut off the sin and the sinner, but actually bragging in the sins that they're committing. So they had to stop boasting in their sins. And that's why later what Paul will say is that their boast should be in Christ. It should be in the Lord. If they have occasion or reason to boast, then it should be in Christ. He speaks the same way toward the church in Philippi, that your boast should always be in Christ. 
So then Paul is direct. He called them to stop boasting in their sins. But more than that, he wants them to partake in the cleansing of the church. So as they stop boasting in their sins, he wants them to partake in the cleansing of the church. So he he not only called them to fidelity, meaning faithfulness, but he called them to prove their faithfulness. He wanted them to prove it. He wanted them to prove their faithfulness in dealing specifically with sin. And so he posed that question in verse six, which I believe at various points throughout the verses that follow, he begins to answer uh, why sin is so destructive in this example of the leavening process of causing dough to rise. In verse seven, he says, clean out the old leaven. He tells them directly, you clean it out. I've already rendered judgment. All you need to do is expel the immoral man from among you. He's already been judged. And so he wants to put them to the test to see if they're going to do what's necessary. Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump because you're already corrupted by sin. You've shown that you're corruptible and you've shown that you have a propensity to corrupt others around you. that you're committing, as it says in verse one, sins that not even the Gentiles commit openly and brag. And so he wants them to clean out the old leaven. That is the mark of true faithfulness. It is one of the marks. And it's this. It's how does the church deal with sin? But it's also how do the individuals deal with sin? And then you ask the questions. Does the so-called confessing church cover sin up? Because Paul says, I want you to render the proper judgments because we have to create a new lump. This is corrupted. Does it treat sin, the church, on a case-by-case basis, rooted in partiality, depending on who sinned? So if the contributor of much finances sins, we don't treat them as much or as poorly as we would or deal with them as harshly as we would those who aren't key contributors to this government posing itself as the church. But what Paul is saying is, no, you need to eliminate all of that. Because as you kind of make your way through Corinth, what you're getting a picture of is that Corinth is a church that is very prominent. You'll see that the things that they face, Paul deals with, and he deals with them in the way of they are certainly given to a certain opulence. They are grand in scale. Even in their sins, they boast and they brag in this very grand way. They parade their fashion in this very grand way. They party. They live hedonistically in this very grand way. And Paul is saying all of that is arrogance. It's arrogance. But that is the mark of true faithfulness. The mark of it is the question itself. How does the church deal with sin? Because I think that's what Paul puts before us. Does the church actually deal with sin? That's a question that we have to ask, especially In the time in which we live, does the church actually deal with sin? I would venture to say not many do. Sometimes they do, but often they don't want to deal with sin on a grand scale. They certainly don't want to deal with sin amongst themselves. And listen, I'll tell you what was prohibiting them because it's what prohibits the modern uh, evangelical uh, churches today. When you have factions built around people, you can't deal with people's sin. 
because you might find that your faction leaders are in sin and the whole house will come crumbling down. It's why we build it not on anything new. We're building on the foundation already established by Christ. I need not apologize for anything he does because he's the sinless and holy one. So it's not built on men. So we don't have to keep up appearances. We don't have to engage in public relations, marketing campaigns. Because what Paul wants is he wants the church to really and actually deal with sin. Remove the unrepentant. Remove not only the unrepentant person, but remove the sin. So it's both and not either or. And so he calls this the old leaven. He calls this the old leaven. That which causes the dough to rise cannot exist with the new unleavened. You don't want sin rising in your midst. You don't want to coddle sin. You don't want to manage guilt, as so many are doing even this hour uh, with the Easter festivities. They're just managing guilt. And therefore, sin is just rising and rising and rising because nobody's actually dealing with it. They're just happy to see the swelling crowds. But what Paul is doing is he's defining for us the most intimate of things in the fellowship of the church. The church then, as Paul writes here, should not be growing in its ability to sin. It should not be growing in sin. It shouldn't be sin growing up in the same place that holiness is growing. in. And it definitely shouldn't be in such a case where people are boasting in those sins. Even the flippant and arrogant phrase that no church is perfect. What people should be saying is the church had better be perfecting. Because it's not true growth if we're allowing sin to grow up with holiness. That's not growth. That's a fast track to judgment. And it's why he says what he says. Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump. You have to start over in Corinth. Just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ, our Passover also has been sacrificed. So he goes to an act. He goes to an act that has already taken place that has accomplished for us our sure salvation. What Paul pointed out was the Lord Jesus's fulfillment of the Passover, his fulfillment of the law of Moses and the need to perpetually offer sacrifices for sin under the law. So Paul is almost in compare and contrast mode where he's showing, you know, before you continually sin, therefore you continually had to offer your own sacrifices. Well, he's saying now, based on the fact that Christ has fulfilled the Passover, that Christ has fulfilled the Mosaic law, that now he has offered himself as a once and for all sacrifice. So in other words, in the language of Hebrews, which we have been studying, where he wrote there, Do not continue to keep on sinning. Do not continue to practice sin as a matter and mode of operations. This should be an encouragement uh, to our souls. But Paul points to the Lord Jesus' fulfillment of the Passover as the sure test of whether the church is cleansed or unclean. Christ has been sacrificed once and for all for the sure salvation of the elect. You see it there. He words it in that way. For Christ, our Passover also has been sacrificed. He's been sacrificed. 
So he's saying, therefore, as he connects it in verse 8, therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. What Paul means to say here is we have to be as we once were. He's telling the Corinthians, you have to be as you were at the beginning of this letter when I described you and described all the features of your sanctification, of being born again, of the new birth. Of all the things that preceded your time before the conflict with Chloe's people uh, arose and the conflict that they reported arose with respect to the factions. And you're seeing the devastation of the factions. We keep going back to that because that's what Paul is dealing with. He's dealing with the fallout from that at this point. So then among the Gentiles, they need not live as though they could sin without consequence. He didn't want them to live that way. He didn't want them to live as though they could sin without consequence and simply offer God ritual without true loyalty and devotion to Christ himself. Isn't that what so many of these houses look like today on this very day, this very Easter Sunday? So many sinning without consequence in their minds and they simply are offering God ritual. Not true loyalty. They're just offering God ritual. They're offering devotion to one another, appearing to offer Christ something, but it's not devotion to Christ if sin, unrepentant, is present among them. We live in a time where people are preaching forgiveness, but in an antinomian way. They're preaching forgiveness, but they're not preaching repentance. So they're saying they want People to forgive each other and they want to be forgiven, but they're not preaching repentance from sin, turning away from sin. So Paul goes to you might have to have expulsion before you have forgiveness. You have to kick this individual out before he can be forgiven. But Paul wanted them to celebrate. You know what he wanted them to celebrate? He wanted them to celebrate their salvation. Look at verse eight. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, he says. Let us celebrate the feast, not the feast of paganism and hedonism, as had been the course of Corinthian life. He didn't want them to celebrate what they always knew. The old leaven of which they were currently partakers, they were currently partakers of this old leaven. And in it, Paul identifies some characteristics of it. It was with malice. Malice, malintent, a certain evilness and wickedness toward one another. The motive of starting up evil and trouble amongst one another and wickedness, which also speaks to the motives and desires that they harbored for one another, that they wanted wickedness and evil and trouble. You and I cannot function in this way and therefore call ourselves a fellowship. It is impossible. You cannot be a fellowship and be a partaker in malice. Desiring evil and trouble and wickedness. It's not a church. They were instead to walk in the new leaven that Paul called them to. A purity. A genuineness mixed with holiness. There's a genuineness to this. It's you would do it even if you were not being seen doing it. And then he goes to it, the truth. Sincerity, the unleavened bread of sincerity. Again, that's genuineness mixed with holiness. That's what he means. He doesn't mean just as you see it, you're sincere in your actions. He means that your genuineness is tied to your holiness, that you do it from a motive of wanting to please 
God and please Christ. But then you're also in the truth. That's your standard. Paul is specific on how to take action. He's specific as to why the sins of the Corinthians with respect to immorality was so damaging. Look at verse nine. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. Now, most people stop there and they don't go further. Well, it's because Paul did not want them to associate with hypocrites. That was the issue. He didn't want them to associate with hypocrites. Now, why do I use this word? Why do I call this hypocrisy? It's hypocrisy because the individual who was immoral was pretending to be moral. And in such a way perverted one's idea of the sins that he was committing that they didn't see anything wrong with his sins. So he got others to accept his sins. That's hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy. Yes, he was boasting in his sin, but the sins were made to appear as though they were holy. They were tied to ritual. They aligned closely to the temple prostitution that was taking place throughout Corinth at large. He's dealing with immorality in the church. And you see, he deals with that first. The apostles always dealt with immorality in the church first. He's dealing with the fact that their lives, listen to this, their lives and their testimony Strictly belong to the world. That's what he means, the immoral man in the assembly. Their lives and their testimony strictly belong to the world. Their boasting is in the world. But listen to this. Their physical presence is in the church and the world. Let's say that again for you. Their lives and their testimony strictly belong to the world. So out of their mouths and their lives, it looks like what the world does and says. And their boasting is in the world. Their boasting is in the sins that they commit in the world system. But their presence, physically, you can find them in both the church and in the world system. You see them in both. They are in between two opinions. Their lives are full of religious ceremony and worldliness. Paul is saying expel them. And on this day, so many are welcoming, welcoming, happy to take their coinage, happy to receive their tribute, their financial, uh, their financial contribution to line their pockets with this dirty money. Filthy lucre, as the Bible says in the old King James version. But their lives are full of religious ceremony and worldliness. I'm describing everything that you're seeing before you today. Full of religious ceremony. It's not just worldliness, but it's religious ceremony and worldliness. And so Paul says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. And then he says, I do not at all mean with the immoral people of this world. I don't mean with the immoral people of this world. You can expect that they'll be immoral. Or with the covetous and the swindlers or with adulterers. For then you would have to go out of the world. So many people are living in bubbles. They don't do anything in the world because they think that God has somehow called them to a life of of asceticism. Just just being withdrawn. But Paul says, no. In doing that, the Corinthians have simply retreated and tolerated sin because they haven't been repentant in their midst. So they've retreated from the world only to allow sins in their midst. That's why I laugh at all these Places that do that. 
They literally live their lives 24-7 in a religious context that permits more sin than the world does. Paul calls that a flagrant violation that God deals with first. But verse 10 is the great caution because he says it. I don't mean all I do not. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world because y'all are acting like the immoral people of this world in the assembly of the religious or with the covetous or swind and swindlers or with adulterers. But then you would have to go out of the world. It's impractical to tell you not to engage with people who are sinners if you're supposed to be winning them. I'm telling you not to fellowship with people who pretend to be believers. That's what he's saying. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person. He's a so-called brother. Everybody calls him brother, brother, throwing that term around. Brother this and brother that, my brother. But this man is immoral. He's covetous. He's an adulterer. He's a reviler. He's a drunkard. He's a swindler. Con artist. He says don't even eat with him. Not even to eat with such a one. It's a great caution. And I believe it is. Because I believe that there are those who associate with these types whom Paul says to expel from among them. Listen to this. While warning about associations from those in the world. So they put on the religious cloth, they associate with worldlings and try to call each other brother, brother, brother. And really, they haven't done anything because they're still around worldlings. They just have dressed it up in religious garb. They spend all their time warning about individuals in the world, governments, government agencies, people out there that could uh, be con artists, drunkards. In the world. And you know what we should be saying? We know because it's the world. But they don't say anything about any of this when it happens in the church. That's what Paul is against. So, again, they spend all their time warning about individuals in the world, which would be fine. It would be fine even for the Corinthians to do that if they weren't harboring the same type of worldlings who hide behind the religious cloth. They were they were hiding them in their midst. And Paul says, no, expel him. He belongs out in the world. Oh, and by the way, he belongs out there so you can go out there and win him, not retreat into religious ceremony while you're still sinning. I believe it is said this way, as it said, because those in the world is categorized in verse 10, avoid the believer for the most part. People in the world avoid Christians. They avoid it. Paul's not saying, hey, disassociate from the, the immoral man wants nothing to do with you either in the world. It's why you have to go win them. But people spend so much, expend so much energy telling you, hey, be careful of people out in the world. People out in the world could care less about you and your Christ. We have to win them. We have to go get them. But now the man who wants to be the religious hypocrite, he cares everything for attaching the false image of Christ to his sin in order to gain some advantage. Paul is concerned with him. Paul wants us to deal with him. Paul is saying you do not have to exhaust your time avoiding people in the world system. You don't have to exhaust your time. You already know that there's a dividing line. 
Now, where it becomes tricky is when someone says, oh, no, I'm a brother. And they live like the world. You can see the world clearly, Paul says. He says, I didn't write to you to disassociate from the world, which you can see clearly. But rather those who profess a superficial claim to the kingdom of God while claiming to be brothers, you must avoid them. I want you to avoid them. I believe when Jesus is called the friend of sinners and when he's eating with the tax collectors and those who were the unwanted in that society relative to their sin, I believe he's demonstrating that very point. I believe he's demonstrating what Paul is actually saying here. That he's demonstrating like, look, I'm not partaking in the sins of the unbelievers, but I am certainly out to win them. However, I'm avoiding those who are in the synagogue. I'm not associating with them as if to give them legitimacy. In fact, I'm not giving legitimacy to the unbeliever and the immoral. What I'm doing is, though, I'm dining with them to tell them you need to repent. But he's avoiding those who would try to join himself and his claims to the world system and provide cover. Paul does not call for what people are doing today. And what they're doing, they think they're so victorious in this. He does not call for self-righteous or fearful retreat from the world for its own sake. He doesn't want self-righteous or fearful retreat from the world for its own sake. Because so many, again, they're retreating into systems that just harbor sin. And they're better off in the world system where the dividing lines are clear. Instead, think of this. There are many. There are many. And I mean many who retreat from the world for these reasons. And that's not a bad thing in and of itself. I'm not mocking those who, who flee from sin. But it is a bad thing when they retreat from the world for these reasons. And it's simply the reasons to not be touched outwardly by sin so as never to win anyone inwardly by the testimony of the gospel. Paul is clear what it takes to live a life of sanctification. Now, he's not saying to dive headlong into sinful areas and sinful circumstances and associate with sinful people. He's not saying that. What he's saying is you can't go live in a cave. You can't go live in full retreat and recession from people in general when you become a believer. Paul doesn't want you to do that because if Paul called you to do that, he'd be calling you against what the Great Commission says. He says, go out, be salt and light. But what he's also saying is, but stop being hypocrites. Stop joining the people who are religiously against Christ and calling themselves brothers. In fact, you don't call them brothers because you just give them legitimacy. The world is full of the covetous. The world is full of the envious. It's full of the con artists. It's full of drunkards. It's full of those who worship idols. Paul doesn't say join them. I don't want you to misunderstand what he is writing here to the Corinthians. He doesn't say join them, but he says you are already separated from. Them. You're already separated. Why do you keep warning about people you're already separated from? 
and yet harboring someone you should be separated from. What he's saying is you must make it your business. And in your living in the world before you, you do not operate like the world does, but you have to live in the world. You don't operate like the world does. You don't operate according to the world's principles. But he is saying this. The church should be different. The church should be altogether different than everything I just said. Your expectation when you come into the house of the Lord to fellowship with his people, you should not expect to meet con artists. You should not expect to meet those who are uh, the covetous. They want what you have for the sake of destroying you to get it. And for the sake of boasting and your destruction, those who disparage and blaspheme Christ, you should not expect to see that in the world, in the in the uh, in the church. You should expect to see it in the world. You should not expect to see the the sexually immoral thriving in the church. You should not expect to see that. When people say we're a church full of sinners, I need you to define that, because if you mean active, unrepentant, we have no fellowship. We have no reason to be gathering together. But if you're saying we're repentant sinners, well, then now we can work with something. See, we must be clear in our distinctions because Paul is. The church should be different. The Corinthians should have been different. They should have been different. Paul says that in verse one. They should have been different. The so-called brother should not operate as the worldlings do. And he should not be treated as though he's in Christ. Verse 11, Paul says not to associate with him. He holds the church to a higher standard. There are people, again, as I say, all day who spend all their time telling us how bad the world is, but never get to their own fellowships who are worse in many ways than the world. Because they harbor the world's men and label them as brothers, as pastors, as deacons, providing safe haven for them in their sins, warning all day about the world, can tell you everything that the world is up to that's just so wicked. And then every Sunday they're sitting before people who are much worse at times, I would say, than the world, because these people, they should know better. They pretend to know better. But Paul says, do not accept them. Do not accept them. Do not embrace them. Do not eat with them. Do not share a meal with them. These so-called brothers who are moral, covetous, idol worshipers, haters of good, drunkards, con artists. That's what he means by those who swindle people out of their money and possessions all the while pretending to be brothers in Christ. I mean, so many are just doing that. Paul says, don't. Why are you sharing a meal? with? Why are you eating with them? Why are you why are you with them? Why are you calling that fellowship koinonia? It is not that the immoral in the world are absolved from judgment. I don't want you to get that impression from what he says and what's written here. Rather, they are already under God's judgment. Paul says that in verse 13. They're already under God's judgment. Instead, our focus is for those who are in the church. Paul called the Corinthians to judge appropriately and biblically those who are in the house of God. But again, this is the pretend boldness, the make-believe imaginary boldness 
of confession, confessing Christianity today. Calling out the world, but will not call out the sins among themselves. Calling out, that's pretend boldness. That's not boldness. Taking on governments and regimes and movements. That's not boldness. It's boldness when you look someone in the eye who's sinning in your midst, even if they're in a prominent position, and telling them you need to repent. And if they don't repent, you have to expel them. No matter what the papers say, no matter what the articles read, you say we deal with sin here. And we deal with it from the top to the bottom, bottom to top. That's boldness. That's boldness. This four-year cycle of political boldness, partisan boldness, that's not boldness. That's make-believe stuff. Read Read through the apostles and the epistles and see how many times the apostles talk about Caesar. See how many times they rebuke Caesar. And then see how many times proportion that and look and compare that to how many times they deal with issues in the church. And then let's talk about what boldness really is. It's pretend boldness, calling out the world, but will not call out these sins. The world is left to the judgment of God. It's not because we're ignoring the world. It's not because we're afraid of the world. The world is already lying in the lap of the evil one. What you're trying to do is make sure, even in that, is make sure that the church is not guilty of that same thing by harboring the same people who are under judgment. It's the purity of the church that's at stake. So many people are fighting for the purity of the world and they're desecrating the purity of the church in the process. Or they won't fight for the purity of the church. They want to fight for the purity of the world. It's insane. That's insane. You want Satan's kingdom to be pure, but you don't want the Lord's church to be pure. It's insane. The world is left to the judgment of God. And in verse 13, he says that judgment and matters concerning the church are left to the body of Christ. Look at what he says in verse 12. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Why would I spend, Paul is saying this, why would I spend all my time judging people in the world? Now he's not saying I'm retreating from people in the world. He's not saying the world isn't guilty. They are. Make no mistake about that. But why would I spend all my time judging outside? They're already judged. Do you not judge those who are within the church? He's saying you're proving adept at making judgments. Why don't you start judging amongst yourselves? And this isn't the judge yourselves, let them sin. It's we're judging ourselves because the world has already committed the judgment. They're already under judgment. So we need to judge ourselves to make sure we're not partakers of the same. It's in the communion passage in chapter 11. He says that. When he provides uh, the distinction between the discipline and chastening hand of God versus uh, judgment. But look at this. Do you not judge those who are within the church? It's our job, the body of Christ. But those who are outside, God judges. Those who are outside, God judges. So what he says is you need to agree with the judgment I have made. And it puts in the context the judgment that he rendered in verse five. I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. And then look at what he says quite plain, uh, quite plainly. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. And listen, in this, 
Paul is saying it has always been this way. A helpful cross-reference for this is way back in Deuteronomy. When this was required in the Mosaic Law, get the wicked man out of here. We don't want him living in Israel and corrupting the nation. Well, Paul is saying the church ought to function in that same way. That point directly applies. Expel the wicked man from remove the wicked man from among yourselves. And it will be evident if he's under God's judgment or not. You know how he'll either return or he'll stay out there in judgment. So he says, essentially, the world is left to judgment. The body of Christ judges matters concerning the church. And he says that that man must be removed. He says the man must be removed. He doesn't say the man must be counseled. Put him through about five to six counseling sessions. Give him some homework. No, he says, remove him. Get him out of here. If he doesn't want to repent, he's gone. Why are we harboring people with all these programs? But listen, not just the man, the wicked man. He says, get the wicked man out of here. There should be a standard to measure whether the man is wicked or holy. He must be removed from among yourselves. And it doesn't mean just playing musical chairs with people. The farm system of people going to church to church, assuming prominent roles after they desecrated the name of Christ. And now you just pick them up and move them and their family to another place. And they are at another post. And here they are preaching again. No, they're wicked. Send them out in the world. They're worldlings. That's where they be- They don't belong up here. They don't belong in the church. They belong in the world. And he says, remove them from among yourself because you know what's going to happen? That will cause you to persevere in holiness. You'll be holy. You won't have the old leaven growing up in your midst among you. So you want a church growth strategy? It's this. It's removing unrepentant sinners from among you. It's removing them. It's not determining that you've sinned. Now everybody's got to cover up. Now we've got to remove people. No. It's you're removing actual sin, unrepentant sin and unrepentant sinners. And this is how the church is to be constructed by God. So it's grown this way and it's constructed. This is why God blesses it. It's constructed this way. It's uprooting sin so that the church at large will be presented as holy before God. Uprooting sin so that the church at large will be presented as holy before God. That's what Paul wants. That's what Christ wants because Paul was learned of him and that's what our father wants. And it is what the spirit desires as well. And so it is what we want in our hearts. Uh, Let us pray.